0: things that characterise Backlisted without us meaning to. I remembered after we were talking about Ballard's work routine last week that I met JG Ballard once. We did an event with him at the bookshop that I worked in. This was in the early 90s. And the event was a signing and it took place on a Saturday afternoon at 2 o'clock. Ballard turned up. It was delightful. At 2 o'clock we sat in behind the signing table and nobody came. (laughs) My manager made us all go put our coats on and go down the fire escape and come in the front of the shop to queue up to get for Ballard to sign some books. Anyway, after we'd all been around once and <laughs> Dane was thinking about sending us through again. Ballard said, I don't he said, Oh, I, I don't think this is really working, do you? And he was ever so nice, and off he went, he went home. <laughs> Two minutes after he left the shop, this is true, a black cab screeched to a halt outside and out of the back. Clutching a pile of novels by J.G. Ballard came Brian Ferry. <laughs> <laughs> and we had to go, sorry Brian, you've missed him. He's got, he's oh, terribly I'm very disappointed. Disappointed in that. I'm very you, can't believe, you can't believe that Brian Ferry and, and J.G. Ballard would not have already, already spent long evenings together, would uh, you? The worlds of music um, and the worlds of
1: books. Ballard had a grudge against Ferry and it was all part of Ballard's grand plan. <laughs> Uh, fairies should be ri- arriving about. It's, it's anyway, I don't think this is working.
0: <laughs> of course, of course, it all makes
2: sense now. It's not. It's not un- impossible. Did you see the brilliant in the controversial punk exhibition that the, that Joe Corrie has kind of come out against? Oh, I think, mm-hmm. sort of mildly, on his side. Though I can see that you know the idea that punk is, it has been non-stop rebellion. I think is is tricky the country life, butter ads, uh, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but what they had did was that great uh, for and against thing, the poster that they had, things they like and things that they were against. I yeah. So, I can't remember who it would do. I think it, it, was, was, it was... It was on a... It was on a, so a t-shirt, t-shirt. And who it? wrote yeah. it? The Bernie... What's but his yeah, name? Uh, uh, Bernie Rhodes. Bernie uh, Rhodes, I think, was. Yeah. And one of the things that they didn't like was Brian Ferry on there, which was quite. There were quite a lot of things that they didn't like. Brian, <laughs> yeah, no kidding, yeah. Brian Ferry was on. Always feels. Uh, and I remember that kind of ill judged. Uh, uh, there was an ill judged anti punk single that Ferry did on The Bride Strip Bear. The name of which I can't quite remember. Isn't that terrible? Ooh. But it was I, it, yeah, it was just I uh, just the idea of now feeling that you need to take a stand against Brian Ferry. Yeah, just...
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so John, have you got your introduction?
2: Yeah, I have a... I hope it's here.
0: Yeah, it is. My God, look at that.
2: Should I say the the magic words? Hello and welcome to the Backlisted podcast. Today we're gathered in the library of our sponsors unbound the website, who bring authors and readers together to create good things to read. I'm John Mitchinson, breeder of old pigs, wild bees and good books. <laughs> are
0: you? I thought you were an entrepreneur. Um, <laughs> who <writes> this nonsense? <laughs> I mean, who doesn't steady. read before speaking? <laughs> and I'm Andy Miller. Uh, I'm the author of the Year of Reading Dangerously. And uh, we're joined, as we are every week, by author and absentee member of the team Matthew Clayton who actually isn't here not yet but he is on his way we hope he's only stuck on a train so um, we're starting and then we're carrying on and uh, following our executive decision to make you uh, concentrate, everyone, uh, we're continuing our policy of only booking guests with the same name as one of us. <laughs> Last show, it was John Niven, and we're joined for this episode by writer and associate editor of Mojo magazine, Andrew Mail. But you can tell us apart because, first of all, I call myself Andy. Only my mum calls me Andrew. Uh, and second of all, would you speak? Say a few words, Andrew. Nobody calls me Andy. <laughs> It's uh,
1: is interesting, uh, isn't it? There are definite Andys and
2: there are oh, do Andrews. But I don't, I don't, it's like Matts and Matthews.
1: But you'd think that I'd, I'd object to the fact that Andy is called an Andy, or oh, I'd simply object to him because he is an Andy, and I only side with Andrews. But I'm absolutely fine with Andy Miller being he Andy has, Miller. He
0: has other reasons to object to it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Andrew's book choice, which we'll be talking about in a moment, is The High Window by Raymond Chandler. But first, John... What have you been reading this week? I have been reading a very soggy but inspiring
2: book called Rain, Four Walks in English Weather oh, yeah, by, I, by I, Melissa I Harrison. I
0: really want to read this, actually. i saying that up front I right
2: now. I ought to put all kind of cards on the table. I'm a huge fan of Melissa's novels, Clay and uh, Hawthorne Time, which I think was uh, shortlisted for the Costa last year. Or this year, even. In fact, it is this year, in 2016, which is great. But this is non-fiction. Yeah. And only maybe today would you get away with commissioning a book on four walks in wet weather, which is what it is. It's four walks. The subtitle is four walks in English weather, uh, one in the winter, spring, summer and, and autumn, all of them in England and all of them in downpours. It's quite short, but it's incredibly dense and incredibly moist, as you would imagine. <laughs> it's such a simple idea, isn't it? Rain, it yeah. dominates our yeah. lives in England. There's a lot of poetry, and indeed the, the literature of, of rain, you know, Coleridge and, and Swift, it, is in this book. But it is also about, I think, rather wonderfully, the memory of walking as a child. I mean, it's the idea that... If I kind of give you the, the sort of the, the pitch for it, which she sort of... She captures towards the beginning of the book, is that it's moisture... Changes landscape more dramatically than anything else. That moisture is essential. There is this extraordinary fact that water is the most anomalous substance in the universe. There are more anomalies mm-hmm. to water. I mean, we, without getting into a QI list, just trust me on this. <laughs> but it is also the most, as well as being the thing that is essential to life. Nothing, no life can exist without it. That's why we're so interested in finding it on Mars and other uh, various bits of the solar system. But it is also the most destructive compound mm. on the planet it, it eats away it is the universal solvent the extraordinary fact that you know you can dissolve something in water and then heat it and whereas if you dissolve something in acid whatever you've dissolved is that's gone history you'll never see it again you can dissolve something in water and dry off the water and there i mean we know this because we used to eat smash potatoes yeah. as children. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean used to? <laughs> <laughs> do love them. And indeed, part of the loveliness of this book is that Memories of Childhood and Walking in the Rain, there's a marvellous bit. Her dad used to take her walking rather in the same way that my dad used to take us walking and that I've actually failed, really, to persuade my children that walking around in a cagoule in the rain is an improving thing. But she tells a story about Eleanor Catton, a Man Booker Prize winner who'd also done a lot of hiking. Eleanor Catton's dad had given her two pieces of advice about which she had distinctly mixed feelings. The first was, nature looks more beautiful in the rain, and the other was, a view needs to be deserved. She goes on to say, both ring true to me, as does her ambivalence. <laughs> <laughs> my father's most frequent aphorism when walking with us on children on Dartmoor every year was rise above it. Rise above tiredness, frequently, or steep climbs, but very often rise above rain. The six of us, you oh may goodness. picture us in cheap 1970s cagouls and sodden bell-bottoms, grew up loving the moors in all weathers, and it was just as well. As in her area of high ground between two sea coasts, Dartmoor does not get does get a lot of orographic or relief precipitation, uh, particularly on its western-facing slopes and on the higher ground. Nine months winter and three months bad weather, as the local saying goes. (laughs) Now, this interests me because we have almost exactly the same thing in my village in Oxfordshire, which which also gets a lot of the orographic, which is the rain that is precipitated from hitting, in our case, the Cotswolds, which are not obviously as high as Dartmoor, but high enough, and Chew is wet backwards, which is one of the things that people fail to... <laughs> when they move to the village <laughs> in the balmy summer months, they say, what's it like in the winter?
0: It was <laughs> encrypted <laughs> say, in the name of the
2: wet. village. Yeah. It is wet yeah. beyond all endurance, yeah, yeah. mud forever and ever. And this, this book is a kind of... It's the glory of mud. And the, the brilliant thing, which is a bit of advice I was just told, is it, it never rains all day. So if yeah. you're out walking mm. in the rain... You actually get into a rhythm of walking the rain. There's no, the other brilliant thing is nobody else is out there. and yeah. She writes about that wonderfully. Yeah. The first journey is a, is a, is a journey in, in Wickham Fen. One of the lovely things is she's in the book. She fills the narrative with words like load and car and sluice. And then even more extraordinarily, she's gathered together a, a brilliant 100 words concerning rain. I mean, you know, we all do pelting, tipping, pouring, but there are some brilliant ones. Blunk. Which is a sudden squall in southern England. But she got mizzle. Which she, has got, the, she has Western got she has got mizzle. She's also mm-hmm. got smur in Scotland, which is <laughs> mm. extremely fine. You know that rain that gets you wet in Scotland, yes, yes. which you can't actually see, but yeah, you, yeah. you yeah. realise that you're suddenly you're, soaked. <laughs> uh, yeah. The other one I like is one we used to use up in the northeast as thunapash, which was a, a squall, a, th- a squall with thunder. Or how about wetchard, wet through after being caught out in the rain? You're right, wetchard, get by <laughs> fire. Again, it's a small book, but it's got a m- yeah, massive yeah. amount. And she just writes, she's a good novelist, but her. The, some of the passages in this book, I'll give you, just indulge me to give you just a tiny... This is the rain falling all around us. is almost silent as it dimples the surface of the load. But the reeds feathery penance whisper and susurrate to themselves as we pass... Deeper and more distant than the reed speech, though, is the rushing water sound of a breeze we can't yet feel as it hits the faraway alder and buckthorn cars. The dog trots ahead of us, alert and keyed up. While heavy rain can wash scent from the ground, moisture makes summer airborne smells more volatile, so the world she moves through today may well be denser, may well be denser with information. It's just
0: lovely walking yeah, out yeah, simplest yeah. thing we all do it we walk a dog you out know, the thing about this book that's really interesting is that when you told me that you've been reading this i had already spotted this a couple of months ago i thought i really want to read that and while you've been talking about it the thing is i am not a fan of gratuitous walking <laughs> <laughs> I, I, it seems pointless to me you you know have a you know have a goal Come on, have up. a goal i oh, rise right above going, right Have going. a goal. earn the view that's I not agree the with point that. you've right. got yeah. to get
2: to the top but, but we can't but. see
0: anything down So wanted to read the book. You know, I love the idea of reading about walking in the rain rather than the idea of walking in the rain. It's very me, isn't
1: it? You know, I mean,
0: but, but, Mediated. But yeah. yeah. You've
1: you just defined the success of nature books, though, haven't you? There's well, this like, is what
0: I was going to say to John. Yeah. Why, why is this stuff... And stuff is what it is. Terrific and, stuff. And terrific well, why is it stuff. So and yeah. popular. I'm,
2: I, I think there's a, maybe a clue. I was quite overcome actually this morning when I was sort of thinking about it, realizing that my boys are getting older and there are bits of the Lake District that are as dear to me as people. I mean, and I thought. <laughs>
0: Thoughts that lie too deep for words. I was Um, (laughs) was thinking just that. There's our pull. Oh, there's the pull quote for next time.
2: And I haven't really shared them. And and she writes about kids now, you know, not going outside. She writes wonderfully about this sort of the idea that the the zone that that children live within now, in the last sort of thirty years, has shrunk by ninety percent. It had to. be really bucketing down or plashing down or whatever. It's for my mum to say, you can't go outside, stay indoors. But now indoor pursuits, screen-based indoor pursuits, yeah. Yeah. there's so much now more for kids to do inside. I mean, they don't go off catching... Fr- I mean, my boys a bit when they were younger, but they don't sort of go out and... I mean, they, they, they like to walk. They love walking. The dogs are a, a good thing. But I think maybe nature that, writing yeah. is a, is it, it, it's that sort of... Elegeic. we don't feel close to it,
1: or we want to feel close to it, but we don't. I think, yeah. I think also there's, you're right about sort of children living inside, but also I think people in general feel like they're too busy, they haven't got time to do yeah. it. And I think, in the same way that people used to pay monks to pray for them because they didn't have time to do it it's themselves, brilliant. I brilliant. think that people, these writers like Melissa, are doing this walking and nature study that other people are too busy to do, so they'll buy a book. They may not yeah. even read that book, but they will yeah. buy a book about <laughs> nature because it's like paying <laughs> the monks to pray for them. They haven't got time to do it themselves. Uh, There's too many things going on. Too many things going I'm, on. I'm busy. But I'm you too busy. Will, But you will go out and you will feel bad about it and you will buy your nature book and you will delve into it. These writers are doing the work for them. And this I'm not saying that's a
0: I, bad thing. This is why I do all this reading. Exactly. So, other, so other people don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> we take a quick pause. Yes, course, the gentle from Porlock has arrived. <laughs> or the, from
2: Putney, anyway.
0: I wanted to make a kind of Marlowe-esque
1: open. <laughs> kind of arrived late and mysteriously. So I thought this was, i actually just been waiting outside for the last do you know, minutes.
2: Do you know my favourite thing on that? My, one of my favourite Billy Wilder, of which more Anon uh, quotes, was. he said, a, a man enters a room through a door, you've got nothing. A man enters a room through a window. You've got a situation. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, Welcome, welcome, ma- hello,
0: welcome Matthew. Anyway, that's what I've been reading. What, Andy, have you been reading? Thanks, John. I've been reading the novel Latecomers by Anita Bruckner. I remember saying about 20 years ago to a publishing friend of mine that I felt Anita Bruckner was taken for granted and that she would only be properly appreciated when she was dead, when there was a body of work to look back on. But actually, I was looking at how people responded to her Dying, and it seemed very quiet to me, and it made me think perhaps I'm wrong. Perhaps actually Anita brutner is not going to get the credit she deserves. And so I thought I ought to take action in the moment and read one of her books, having not read one of her novels for quite a long time. I think I've read two of her novels previously. Anyway, I bought a copy of Late Comers because it's one of the only two of her novels which is currently in print. And I have to say, I can't remember being so moved by a book both the emotional and the intellectual control of it it's a masterpiece a masterpiece it's published in 1988 it's about two aging men who have been living in england their whole lives but were both on the kinder transport out of germany and initially you think you're reading a book about a friendship and about their wives and their children Very quiet, very understated. And as it goes on, you realise what she's doing is sketching a portrait of the effect of that initial wrench from home and family and parents on a whole life, in the most subtle and beautifully understated way. Incredibly ambitious, while appearing to be merely elegant. And I'd read it, I was so moved by it and thought it was so fantastic. And also I, felt, I feel quite strongly about this. We were talking on the last podcast about Elizabeth Taylor, and Elizabeth Taylor, yeah. a perennially underappreciated author, of whom our guest Andrew Mail is a great fan and a long-term admirer. And we say about authors like Elizabeth Taylor, and I was just flicking through DJ Taylor's um, new book, The Prose Factory, which is about um, literary life in uh, post-war England. And he says about Elizabeth Taylor in there, you know, it was her great misfortune to be writing wonderful books in the era of uh, the kitchen sink drama yeah. and, and writers like the late Barry Hines as well. You know, right. that they, the, that she was just... ink became unfashionable. And... When we talk about her now and we say, oh, she's perennially underappreciated, but we think, oh, we congratulate ourselves because we think that's a that's the thing that used to happen. That wouldn't happen now. I've seen it happen this week with Anita Bruckner. Yeah. It's yeah. happening right now with Anita Bruckner. A wonderful, brilliant, unique novelist. Nobody writes like her. No. You know, uh, so, Interestingly, I picked up uh, Hotel
2: de Lac, which I'd never we have at home because Rachel, my wife, did publicity for her it is remarkable i mean it is remarkable that and i, I think i told you andy i, I bumped into a, a a a publishing colleague who should remain nameless who i'd said it, it, sorry to hear about about Bruckner and he just said oh i just couldn't stand her stuff and i was thinking yeah i suppose thinking this this knowing your taste you probably <laughs> whoever you are whoever you are <laughs> Uh, you know, he's, and he said, I'm far, "I was far more upset by the passing, also sad, of Peter Maxwell Davis, the composer." And I, I, it made me think exactly the same thing. And I'd read the obituary in the Guardian, which really I thought that did a, a strange piece, did of a very st- odd thing. Was uh, yes, she was Slade Professor, first woman Slade Professor of Art at, at Slade School. Uh, that's an extraordinary achievement. She's an extraordinary art historian and write, writes brilliantly, particularly on 19th century, early 19th century, late 18th century painting. But picking up Hotel de Lac, it's... It is... It's a... Um, I'm going to finish it. It's, it's, it's that extraordinary thing of somebody who is so completely in control. Yeah. yeah that's and you get it. that very rarely with, with writers. We're going to go on and talk about another one in, in a moment. Yeah, yeah. Chanda. But But... Um, and I thought, why? And I, was, I, I asked myself, why have I never read Anita Bruckner? Because Rachel used to tell wonderful stories about how eccentric she was and lived on Rivita crackers and cigarettes and would go to parties for five, literally go to parties for five minutes and then leave. And she'd have a conversation with one person and she'd send a sort of note saying, so pleased I spent my time at the party with you. you know, kind of, yeah. I mean, she had all that eccentricity. And I thought Julian Barnes is, is one of the most wonderful pieces of one writer, generous pieces yes, of yes. one writer about another. and. Let 's hope that
0: will get a few people actually picking I really
2: up hope but so. did you say there were only two books
0: in print there, well, I think to be fair, Penguin had planned a big reissue campaign yeah. later in the year, but it so happens that in the week she dies you you can you can walk into a bookshop and you can only buy two books late comers or or a hotel du you like I have to say so there's a a thing I wish to add about this it, um, when we were recording this, we just heard yesterday that Barry Hines, the author yeah. of Kes Kestrel for Nate, has died. I did a little um I had looked, I, I thought Andrew was taking the mickey out of me correctly for thinking I might be able to squeeze in a quick Barry Hines
2: <laughs> before, I, before I come and <laughs> well, do I'd the podcast. Well, I did the same right? thing. Right, so okay. I had, what I did was watch Kez instead, okay, which, which, I is I seen, fine. which I hadn't but, seen which but,
0: was You know what? There's nothing in print by Barry Hines except Kez, and there's nothing that's been in print for decades by Barry Hines. You know, these are, these know. are not insignificant writers. No, no. And I put a thing up on Twitter saying, you know, I'm doing a survey. Who amongst my followers has read any books by Barry Hines that
1: aren't Kez? Three,
0: yeah. I had three the Game, Game would, was the only one, other one I read.
1: That was the one. There was a nice little piece by Ian McMillan uh, recently, yeah. and he yeah. singled out the gamekeeper and said, "This is this is a great book that needs to be read." And you're right; it's not well, in print at the moment. Maybe that would be a fun future.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, it really would be. But also, it begs a question: you know, what? Why aren't they in print? Well, so people read Kes and think, "That's it." I never read well, to need to need to
2: read another book by Barry Hines? I don't know if it's true, but somebody told me that even things like The Rainbow by D.H. Lawrence they sell kind of, you know, fewer than 300 copies a year, keeping anything yeah. in there. I mean, I, I don't know whether that's true. Right?
0: All right, but, but, even uh, electro- but even electronically in the current era, they're, they're just well, not there. One of the things that's really disappointing about ebooks, which I noticed, is
2: mm. that there's a lot of modern trash that's in, in Kindle format, but if you try and find classics, you can find Dickens and you can find George yeah. Eliot, but an old book by as it were, Elizabeth Taylor, or none of that stuff, or Faulkner. I discovered that I yeah. couldn't get As I Lay Dying as an e-book. Yeah. This
1: is the very odd thing, because when the whole e-books thing came in, I certainly thought, oh, well, all books are going to be available. It's like, it's yeah. not going to be that <laughs> difficult, is it? It's like I can, I can get my you know sort of £2.99 copy of this previously impossible-to-find book, and uh, absolutely it's not. Yet
0: to happen.
2: Anyway, we should all read more, yeah. Brookner? more Brookner. and a
0: Bruckner. More Bruckner. And more Elizabeth Taylor. More and more Elizabeth Taylor. And, seamlessly, <laughs> perhaps more Roman Chandler. Honestly, what could be... Uh, you know that thing where
2: I have this fantasy sometimes I'm going to get some terrible illness that will mean I have to stay in bed for a long time? <laughs> I don't know. Do you, does everybody else have Yes. This? And I, want, I will read the whole of Woodhouse, which I haven't uh, done. And, mm-hmm. and shortly after, or maybe at the same time, I would also have every single thing, I think, that Chandler wrote.
0: Hey, it can't all be book chat... Smoke Chesterfield's
2: I don't think I've read The High Window I'm pretty sure I hadn't read it before but I thought I'd read I certainly read five or six of them It's like being
0: embraced by an old friend you know? it's joyous, when isn't when it? Andrew suggested we read The High Window I think if you'd said this is like a couple of months ago I think if you'd said to me which famous novelist's third novel was The High Window <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't have known I've never knowingly heard of it no. And I hadn't, read, it's, it's I hadn't read a book by Raymond Chandler since I read The Big Sleep, his first book, when I was 13. And I have to say a massive thank you to Andrew because the, my great pleasure over the last six weeks has been effectively as discovering Chandler properly for the first time. I thought I knew what Raymond Chandler was, but I didn't. So, Andrew, what is it for you that, that made you want to make
1: us read The High Window? Mm-hmm. For very similar reasons, I bought, probably about 20 years ago, when Penguin first brought out their collection of all the six novels, there was one, there was kind of three in um, one book and three in the other, and the high window stood out. The first two novels, The Big Sleep and Farewell, My Lovely, they're entrenched in genre. Chandler was educated at Dulwich College in the classics, and you can tell that he approached... Hard-boiled genre fiction, in the same way that he must have approached Latin and Greek, he learned everything, and he got you know mm-hmm. everything right. He is a scholar of this stuff. But you read the first two books, and they are perfect works of kind of assimilation. You know, he's read his. Dashiell Hammett. Mm-hmm. Hammett was a he worked for the Pinkton Agency and he wrote court reports, he wrote police reports that's why Hammett's so good at sort of those detailing of events. When was Hammett writing? Was he writing a lot earlier than that? It's probably about a decade earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's what Chandler took from Hammett, that kind of. Because if you read the early Chandler short stories, they're all over the place. Every two pages, you have two guys coming in with guns, and one (laughs) of them dies, and another one runs off. And they're a mess, you know, they're a joyous mess, but they're a mess. But he read the Sam Spade books, he read the uh, Continental Op books, and he got this kind of methodical approach from them. And you read the first two novels, and he's got it down pat already. I mean, that's the thing, when you kind of look through the short stories and the early novels, there's only about two or three short stories before he's got the style down. I mean, mm. he's a
0: quick learner. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about this when we get onto the bio, but he writes for a magazine called...
1: Black Mask. Black Mask. Yeah. yeah. So the first two novels are completely entrenched in the genre. They're masterpieces of hard-boiled fiction. And the later novels, after he started working in Hollywood and after you started drinking heavily. A much more kind of full of a cynicism and a self loathing and a kind of a, a sort of Search for the point of why am I doing this, especially um, The Long Goodbye, the last book. You know, there's another character in there who's a a writer of romantic fiction, and they're all different versions of Chandler. We
0: we should just say it's not the last book, but it feels like the last book. The
1: last book is Playback, which was adapted from a screenplay and just feels like a kind of a last gasp. But the
0: The Long Goodbye is the last book...
1: It's written. Before as a his wife well. dies, yes, and he tips
0: over into full-blown yeah. alcoholism, the alcoholism yeah. and suicide. Yeah.
1: So the high window sits in the middle. I think the high window is unlike any of the other books. It feels much more still. There's, it hasn't got that sort of breakneck speed of the first two novels. But also, there's that real sense of... Chandler being aware of the fact that he's lived in Hollywood since the early 20s, and he's seen it change. And this is the first novel that he writes that is actually about the Hollywood that he lives in and the way in which this real city has been overtaken by fakeness by Hollywood itself by the by the movies but also new money and so the thing that's fascinating about the high window is nothing is real in it You know, everybody is speaking movie lines. You know, Marlowe says at one point, (laughs) pictures that made them talk like that. You know, so you can't can't (laughs) trust the way anyone speaks. You can't trust their appearance because there's, you know, there's something doubtful behind it. Everything is a pose and a fake. Everything is surface. There's no depth. I mean, even the MacGuffin at the centre of the book... (laughs) eventually. How,
0: how, what, 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 oh, we need to read the blurbs. Oh, okay. We need to read yeah. the blurbs because yeah. otherwise people are going to you know, the thing about trailers, we have the plots are convoluted yeah, and
2: brothers, we so. have to be oh, very, we need to say something We very, have to stick to our spoiler rules, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
1: But we need to say something very important about plot in Chandler. But read yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. let's read, I'm gonna, Okay, way,
2: so yeah.
0: what we're going to do, we're going to read we were going to read one blurb. We're actually going to read two blurbs Yeah. because we'll you see why. So this is a blurb off the back of a 70s. Yeah. Yeah, 70s. Penguin edition of The High Window. Here we go. And incidentally, we're going to try and have an embargo on this episode of Humphrey Bogart Impressions. (laughs) John. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Mrs Elizabeth Bright Murdoch wanted to hire a nice, clean private detective who wouldn't drop cigar ashes on the floor and never carried more than one gun. She had lost a rare coin, the Bracer Doubloon. She knew who had stolen it, and she hired Marlowe to get it back, as quietly as possible, because Mrs Murdoch had a lot to hide even from Marlowe. The coin turned up all right, but the search uncovered a string of murders and an elegant blackmailer, and Marlowe was in a fix. And that's pretty good, I <laughs> that's think. Great. Right? Okay, well, here is the blurb off the Shall back of the my... Yeah, see, you read see. the other. This is the, bu- this is the blurb off the back of uh, the 1960s edition.
2: <laughs> okay, without... <laughs> it started with some... <laughs> it started with some business about a rare coin. Everybody knew who had stolen it, but nobody was anxious to do anything about it. Marlowe couldn't understand why the old lady had hired him. She didn't seem to like detectives, and she didn't want to tell him much. So he started to think about her, and then about the pale, fragile, frightened little girl who was her secretary, and then about her son, which led him to the gambler, and then to the gambler's luscious and lustful wife, and then to the elegant blackmailer. And so this case became a study of character. For even when murder was done, even after the second murder... Character was the root of everything.
0: Oh, I think that's great. Somebody's read that. Really? Isn't that good?
2: My. God, look, can can we just say, this is an exquisite looking. uh, Oh, it's a lovely. What was he called? The Great Penguin. uh, Tish. What's Tish Bowl? No, no, he was uh, the 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 guy. uh, Tony Godwin, who was the kind of the. who's running Penguin. That's an amazing. It's got the green livery, but it's an amazing jacket. And that's a
0: great blurb. I'm going to put a little photo up of our various editions of The High Window. Yeah. (laughs) So people can see the decline (laughs) and fall. Yeah, I'm not even going to read the contemporary. Nah, Work. two verbs two really? is sufficient. Yeah. Andrew, you were saying just then one of the things that this book about is about character, and one of the characters is, is
1: L.A. Yes, absolutely. Right. Yeah, yeah. I think you had a bit to read, When you- I suggested this book, I remembered one passage from it. And it's a description of a place in L.A. that isn't there anymore called Bunker Hill. And the other interesting thing about it, it's where Chandler and his um, wife, Sissy, first moved to when they moved to uh, Los Angeles. So this is, he's seen it change, and this is how it is in 1940. Yeah. Bunker Hill is old town, lost town, shabby town, crook town. Once, very long ago, it was the choice residential district of the city. And there are still standing a few of the jigsaw gothic mansions with wide porches and walls covered with round-end shingles and full-corner bay windows with spindle turrets. They're all rooming houses now. Their parquetry floors are scratched and worn through the once-glossy finish, and the wide, sweeping staircases are dark with time and with cheap varnish laid on over generations of dirt." In the tall rooms, haggard landladies bicker with shifty tenants. On the wide, cool front porches, reaching their cracked shoes into the sun and staring at nothing, sit the old men with faces like lost battles. In and around the old houses, there are fly-blown restaurants and Italian fruit stands and cheap apartment houses and little candy stores where you can buy even nastier things than their candy. And there are ratty hotels where nobody except people named Smith and Jones sign the register and where the night clerk is half watchdog and half panda. Out of the apartment houses come women who should be young but have faces like stale beer. Men with pulled-down hats and quick eyes that look the street over behind the cupped hand, the shields, the match flame. Worn intellectuals with cigarette coughs and no money in the bank. Fly cops with granite faces and unwavering eyes. Cokies and coke peddlers. People who look like nothing in particular and know it. And once in a while, even men that actually go to work... But they come out early, when the wide, cracked sidewalks are empty and still have dew on them.
0: Oh, it's,
2: music. it's
1: beautiful. It's
2: so good. I have to say, the descriptions in the book, of the many great descriptions, I mean, Mrs Murdoch is, is fabulous mm. with her kind of drinking port and, and, and sitting in the gloom. I mean, this is the classic, the Linda Conquest, where, where oh. he, you know, she looked like a photo and not like it. She had the wide, cool mouth, the short nose, the wide, cool eyes, the dark hair parted in the middle and the broad white line between the parting. She was wearing a white coat over her dress with the collar turned up. She had her hands in the pockets of the coat and a cigarette in her mouth. She looked older, her eyes were harder and her lips seemed to have forgotten to smile. They would smile when she was singing in that staged, artificial smile, but in repose they were thin and tight and angry.
0: Brilliant. I've also got to say, there's a great thing that Charlie does. I'm going to give my uh, uh, two brief selections. Simply, he's, he knows how to land a gag. Oh, yeah. yeah. Right? So, so funny. From 30 feet away, she looked like a lot of class. From 10 feet <laughs> right. away, she looked like something made up to be seen from 30 feet away. I mean, that's, you know. And there's also this yeah. bit. I looked at the ornaments on the desk everything standard and all copper a copper lamp, pen set, and pencil tray. A glass and copper ashtray with a copper elephant on the rim. A copper letter opener. A copper thermos bottle on a copper tray. Copper corners on the blotter holder. There was a spray of almost (laughs) copper-coloured sweet peas (laughs) in a copper vase. It seemed like a lot of copper.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, it's wonderful. But I also love the way that he played with the genre in there. Yeah, yeah. After the bit that John just read. What I like about this place is everything runs so true to type, I said. Yeah. The cop on the gate, the shine on the door, the cigarette and check girls, the fat, greasy, yeah, sensual yeah. Jew with the stately, tall, bored showgirl, the well-dressed drunk and the horribly rude director cursing the barman, the silent guy with the gun, the nightclub woman with the soft grey hair and the B-picture mannerisms, and now you, the tall, dark torture with the negligent sneer, the husky voice, the hard-foil vocabulary. She said, is that so? And <laughs> fitted her cigarette between her lips and drew slowly on it. And what about the wise-cracking snooper with last year's gags and the come-hither smile?
0: God. But that's what Andrew was, yeah. exactly what Andrew was saying about it being everybody's playing a part, yeah. you know, everyone yeah, in no, LA. Nothing,
1: is, nothing yeah. is real. I mean, they even say to Marlowe, you know, there's a bit where Marlowe cracks one of his, albeit fantastic, jokes, and uh, Murdoch says to him, Not good, Marlowe. Not even fresh.
0: (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. But Andrew, you were saying about him, he finds his voice and he's gradually trying to move away from the hard-boiled genre. I found this brilliant quote from him. He said, when you write in a hard-boiled magazine you have to stick to the formula because that's why people are buying it and they want to read it. And he said, uh, some of us try pretty hard to break out of the formula, but we usually got caught and sent back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're, they're, it's only in the it, novels that he can begin to it, move towards what he, he he does in The High Window and
1: then on again in the later... There's, there's a lovely motif all the way through as well, that sense of kind of what is real and what isn't. And oh, yeah. as, a, as, a, as a classic scholar as well, you can you can draw parallels with them through the looking glass because constantly Marlowe is checking himself in the mirror oh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and he's che- and he doesn't recognize or it's almost like he doesn't quite recognize the person he sees or the person in, he sees in the mirror is more real than the person on the other side he stepped through the looking glass I mean there's a there's a really lovely bit I mean, there's loads of little gags once you once you know I thing, like once he arrives at the mansion one of the first things he meets is uh, it's a dog called Heathcliff yeah, yeah. yeah, And so, you know, it's like it's like, it's like like Marlowe is Lockwood. It's like kind of, yeah, you know, he yeah, arrives yeah. at the big house and everything goes to hell. Yeah. You know, everything suddenly becomes more strange and gothic and wrong. Someone could say, oh, you're reading too, too much into it. But it's there all the way through, all these little points yeah. that and says, this is an unreal world. This is Marlowe stepping through the looking and glass. And
2: it's an unreal world that he has to try and piece together a story, a yes. truth. And that let's say... The reveal is brilliant. Three-quarters of the way through this book, you have no clue how the hell he's going to extricate. You're still thinking, what about the... He's got one of the doubloons. Just in terms of technical, uh, the ability to, to write a plot that keeps everybody guessing... Brilliant. But you realise that what he's doing is much darker. I mean, he's doing something far more ambitious than he. You, you, what you say is the surface of things, the reflections, the motif every time he goes and visits Misenberg, or he packs the little uh, Dolliver, little negro. Hey, pal, I figure hey. you're, the, you're the most real thing there he's is the, around He's here.
0: the authentic character. It, yeah. yes. <laughs> yes.
2: And... <laughs> And even in his own self-doubt, he is himself a cliché when he's, you know, he's playing that role. The police are always doing what the police do in Chandler books, which is going for the lowest, you know, the path of least
0: resistance. But there's a passage towards the end which I just thought was... Before we read another passage, I think we should... I want to do the Chandler biog. Yeah, let's that do that. that? Yes. So Raymond Chandler's born in 1888. He grows up in England and most significantly... Uh, he lives in Croydon for a while. <laughs> like
1: yeah, all up and the best up pe- up in Norwood. Up and
0: Norwood, like all the best people do. And he went to Dulwich College. He wasn't quite there at the same time as P.G.
1: Woodhouse, you, but he was. Is right. up and Norwood
2: the posh bit of Croydon, just so I get this right? Is it? it's, it's, uh,
1: it's, it's not as yeah. posh as it would have been when Chandler Yeah, was it. It's kind of, yeah it, it was it's, genteel in, in yeah, I mean, time, it's a beautiful it? house. It's, re- it's near where I live. It kind of if you, I'm walking up to Crystal Palace, I pass Chandler's house. It wasn't as posh as the bit of Croydon I lived in. <laughs> uh, but, but sorry, one thing, the Dulwich College thing is, I do wonder if Chandler was taught English by the same teacher who taught Woodhouse, because oh, yes. that mastery of the sentence. Yeah. And, the, you know, you do think, were well, they taught by the same guy. Because there is that where you can draw the parallel.
0: So he know. didn't go to university, became a reporter for the Daily Express. He wrote poetry, fought in the trenches in the First World War. Began a relationship with and subsequently married Sissy Pascal, a married woman 18 years his senior. By 1931, Chandler was a highly paid vice president of the Dabney Oil Syndicate, but his alcoholism, absenteeism, promiscuity with female employees, and threatened suicides all contributed to his dismissal a year later. What what an annual appraisal! (laughs) (laughs) Come in and sit down, Mr. Chandler.
2: How do um,
1: you
0: think the years?
2: Yeah. where do you so see gets, yourself in five years' so he's time? He's an
1: alcoholic. He gets fired at the, the height of the Great Depression. One important thing to say about him working at the Dabney, Dabney Oil Syndicate is that he was an auditor there. I mean, people compare him uh, to Dashiell Hammett and say, well, Hammett worked for the Pinkertons. Hammett investigated yeah, people. Yeah, Hammett yeah. had the real experience. And people say about Chandler, he didn't have the experience. It's not true. He was investigating people who worked in the oil syndicate. Yeah, in that yeah, sense, yeah. he was. Procedure. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, like, yeah, what yeah. was the oil syndicate? What was the, what it? Was, it was get rich, kind of st- struck oil in, in Los Angeles, and everyone making a lot of money for themselves yeah. and a lot of people skimming the money off for themselves as well. It's Chinatown. (laughs) Well, (laughs) somebody did say that Chinatown is a Chandler novel. It's the the Chandler novel that he's working towards. Because the other thing to say about The High Window... Sorry I'm interrupting you, Andy. But um, it's the first novel where the corruption... Exists outside of the family. If you read The Big Sleep and yeah, you read yeah, yeah. Uh, Farewell, My That's Lovely, really these are corrupt families. It's all within the sort of rich families. But here, there's a point, point in the high window where Marlow literally stops the novel to... Tell you this story which he calls, um, case. yes, the Casty case. And the Casty case is based on a real case, a real cover up case where, um, this rich guy shot his servant and they made it look like the servant mm-hmm. shot sure, the rich yeah. guy. And it's so weird when you get to this point in the book because it's like everyone stops, it's like it's like Marlowe says, Okay, before we proceed any further, I've got to tell you this story. It's like and a it's, soliloquy, isn't it? it's and totally a play, like a soliloquy, almost and, breaking, it, and it's yeah. like, and it's basically like him saying. No one can be trusted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And could then it, we, it, I
0: wonder if we could hear the. We were talking about LA, and we've got a, a, a short clip of Chandler being <laughs> Chandler. We'll say something about this in a minute. Yeah, Chandler being interviewed by Ian Fleming. Uh, wow. But uh, uh, On the subject of LA, so let's just listen to that mm. now.
3: California has been written about uh, a book by Ra- called Ramona, mm. a lot of sentimental slop, but nobody in my time. I tried to write about uh, Los Angeles back in any sort of realistic way. Of course, now, half the writers in America live in California. (laughs) Because Nathaniel West uh, did, I think, didn't he? um... Yeah, but he came along much, much later. Yes, he did. That's quite true. Well, uh, as far as my material is concerned, I'm afraid I just get mine by going to places and and, uh, taking down copious notes because I can't remember anything. Yes, but you're an experienced journalist. Well, I think it's the answer. Yeah, and then I learned my well, writing. You can go to Las Vegas and you can yeah. get Las Vegas in a few days yeah. except the ice water. Right. <laughs> oh well, yes, you complained about some of our, in one of the meals my James Bond ordered in Las Vegas. I described the meal and I didn't Get him the waitress bringing the ice water the first thing. <laughs> not that Well, that amused me because that's the first thing that <laughs> happened in the know. American restaurant. I... I kicked that Is myself. a glass of ice water. I don't wish to... I, I was
0: suspecting a number of cool drinks have been taken by both parties. I think so.
3: What were you saying, there's, there's, as, that
0: there, goes, as that goes on? There people think f- the editing on this show's loose. <laughs>
1: <laughs> there is a fantastic point in that interview where um, Fleming says that he can write a novel in um, three months or something, and Chandler gets really annoyed. Chandler goes, what, Three months? You can write a novel in three months. I wrote, I wrote ones I wrote in four months, but three months, <laughs> <laughs> three months. It takes it takes me forever writing now. Three months. Because obviously, the longer it went on, the harder Chandler found fa- found it yeah. to write his novels. Even though, to use his word, they were cannibalised from the short stories, but it just became more and more difficult. You for know, me.
0: that's funny because that story also has a mirror in the experience that he had. When he first went to Hollywood, he works on the script of Double Indemnity yeah. with Billy Wilder. And Billy Wilder tells a brilliant story in his Paris Review interview of when they met with Chandler. So Billy Wilder said, we'd lo- to love to work with you on the adaptation. When can we expect the script? And Chandler said, this is Friday. Do you want it a week from Monday? <laughs> Holy shit, we said. We usually took five to six months on a script. Anyway, he came back in (laughs) 10 days with 80 pages of absolute bullshit. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So he could, when he was working on The Pulps, he's not the most prolific writer, but he clearly has. It's funny you were talking about The Big Sleep, the first novel, and Farewell, My Lovely, the second. The High Window is the first book, I believe where he isn't
1: reusing elements of plots but from the fair, short stories, right? He's not. It's Pearls are a nuisance, I think, is referenced in The High Window. But it's the first one where he's actually set out to try and write something that is removed from the short stories. That you know, that he's interesting. Yeah. It's interesting you mention Wildler, because the book that convinced Wildler to let Chandler work on Dublin Dempsey was The High Window, and it's actually one paragraph in The High Window, which I've bookmarked, which is... In the swivel chair at the desk sat an elderly party in a dark grey suit with high lapels and too many buttons down the front. (laughs) He had some stringy white hair that grew long enough to tickle his ears. A pale grey bald patch loomed high up in the middle of it like a rock above timberline. Fuzz grew out of his ears, far enough to catch a moth. And it was that line, it was that line that just knocked Wildler's socks off. He said, Who else writes like that? Far enough to catch a moth.
0: Which is brilliant. It's wonderful. One of the things that I think is interesting about the high window as well, which, you know, as we've said, remains in some obscurity by quite a famous writer, is that the Big Sleep had been a quite a big success yeah. and Farewell My Lovely had not been such a success yeah. and this one tanked yeah. this was book 3 I mean, yeah, this didn't a flop. This, yeah. did, this was a yeah. flop i've got a quote from Chandler here he said uh, he wrote to somebody saying the thing that rather gets me down is that when i write something that is tough and fast and full of mayhem and murder i get panned for being tough and fast and full of mayhem and murder And then when I try to tone it down a bit and develop the mental and emotional side of it, of the situation, I get panned for what I was panned for putting in in the first place.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And it's (laughs) It's it's talking about exactly this book. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly this book. It is
0: much more, I think, than the
2: the whole thing, the psychology, the the character of Merle, which we won't go into any detail because she's essential to the plot, his sensitivity in dealing with her and her psychological kind of affliction is way beyond, pretty much anything in in fiction of this kind until you get to P.D. James and Ruth Rendell. It's much much more... um, I love that after he's dropped her off for reasons that we can't go into, there's a great line, I had a funny feeling as I saw the house disappear as though I had written a poem and it was very good and I had lost it and would never remember it again. I mean, that
0: really... You know what? Get the, that uh, out of any other yeah. thriller writer. One of know. the things that I found reading these Chandler novels, like the bit you just read, John, clearly this, the genre and his style owes a great debt to Hemingway. Yeah. And yet, did Hemingway ever write a sentence as good as that? I, I could be convinced he didn't. Mm. You know, there's a kind of humility to it that you don't get in Hemingway. Or at least Hemingway is more concerned about about fronting up to the reader and being in control with
1: the reader. Chandler could write a very good, and did write very good uh, Hemingway parodies. You know, is that right? I yes. didn't know that. Here yeah, he kind of, the you know, the whiskey tasted good. It tasted damn good. Yeah. And just kind but of. It's you the know, place I mean, no, the gap I mean, no, the, yeah. between them is not but very I big, think, right. I think that's the thing. He knows where Hemingway edges into parody, and he kind of, I think he stops himself from doing that. Or he brings. Humour into it. Yeah. His yeah. similes, because his similes are so you know they vault over Hemingway, don't they? You know yeah. they yeah, are yeah, so yeah. grand and funny. You know they, they do, don't. He
0: they has, don't always work. No, but he has that lovely thing when you read one of them. I, I often and I did think several times in the High Window, he's put that in and he's made himself laugh yes. on a rough morning. Absolutely. You know and you know you know how yeah. Chandler wrote. He wrote on little bits of yellow paper that could only hold eleven or twelve lines so that he could be sure that on, in every paragraph or couple of paragraphs, there was something absolute dynamite on every page. And it's exactly the reason why you get that rhythm yeah, yeah. to it. I watched uh, the the only original script that Chandler wrote for a film called The Blue Dahlia. Okay, yeah. And um, it's a lousy film held together only by... Chandler's genius for one brilliant line after another Yeah, it's badly acted it's badly shot the plotting is all over the place because Chandler hadn't finished it when he started it he didn't know what was going to happen and yet bouncing from line to line you go whoa (laughs) <laughs> one
1: magnificent thing after More Malikai. importantly he told the um, studio that he had to get drunk to finish it Alan Ladd had to go into the army so they had something like kind of you know they basically the time to finish it was so short and Chandler ba- basically told the studio the only way I can do this is to get raging roaring drunk <laughs> for two weeks and so it was written in the contract and he had secretaries on, on standby to kind of transcribe any kind of drunken shoutings that he made and it, yeah. it basically was probably the thing that kind of contributed most to his early death, that that major drunk that he went on to write The Blue Dahlia and he hated the film he um, referred to the uh, female lead after he watched the film as Moronica Lake
0: (laughs) (laughs) So as Andrew was saying after The Blue Dahlia and after his wife dies he begins the pretty speedy descent into alcoholism and uh, the last years of his life are pretty grim yeah. All things considered, I wonder what Charla was like to deal with. Andrew, who said to me after like three episodes of Bat-listed, he said, "You know what this podcast should be called." <laughs> Oh, they're poor agents.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. I don't know who Chandler's agent was, but presumably... yeah, well, he... he
1: his final agent, he proposed to her, they were going to get married, but this is what Chandler did after Sissy died, and he'd made a lot of money by them from the movies. He effectively went on a grand tour, and lots of people wanted to meet Chandler because they thought they were going to meet Marlowe. You know, they thought they were going to meet this very witty, very handsome, very suave gentleman. And they met this antisocial, sentimental. Drunk, but an antisocial, sentimental drunk who any woman who took it upon themselves to look after him or feed him or anything, he thought that they were going to propose marriage to him. So I think he proposed marriage to Sonia Orwell. He did. I think he (laughs) proposed marriage to Natasha Spender as well. And so anyone who sort of took him under their wing, he thought. And I think it's sad because I think it's obviously because he's without sissy and he's looking for another sissy. He's looking for another another mother figure you know i mean that's yeah, the yeah, other yeah. thing as well i mean it's interesting what you say about the the women in the high window because he has a very odd relationship with old women because i think he disliked his mother because his mother stopped yeah. him from marrying when he was younger yeah so exactly. mrs murdoch yeah. is chandler's mother yeah. but there's, a, there's also kind of that you know that sense that he wants to kind of save and take care of a lot of these women. And the, it's, the, yeah, it's, it's... The the, it's the,
2: the, the Merle subplot, his, his looking after her Ooh. and taking her in when she, when she needs it is, is I mean, it is remi- it's a remarkable...
1: It's, it's the romantic thing. I mean, this yeah. is the book in which he's called A Shop-Soiled Galahad. And it's interesting yeah. about the... I mean, I won't give anything away, but the passage in which the title of the book is revealed, <laughs> that yeah. The High Window, is remarkable. But also, I was, you know, basically, The High Window is... A popular motif in romantic paintings. Chandler wanted to be a romantic Gothic novelist. He'd have known about Caspar David Friedrich, you know, and the image of the High Window, in it. And yeah, you th- yeah. and also the other thing is Larkin, Larkin read crime books. Yeah, yeah. So I'm convinced that you Larkin think? took the High Window. Mm, yeah, that's good. because, and also you can draw parallels. There's that sense of kind of ideals and emptiness vision and light and then the fall optimism and decline, all the things that are in High Windows the Poet you can pull out of this book if you want to, but But the main thing is I think that Chandler as a as a scholar of Gothic Romantic novels, you were talking about the novel titles in um, the last week with the information. Yeah. The book that Chandler wanted to write was called *An English Summer* brackets a Gothic romance.
0: That was <laughs> the, that English was what Sum- he. English Summer also the title of a great lost Rolling Stones single from 1967. <laughs>
1: yeah, but this was this was the novel that he put Should all we've got his hopes in. Coming out of my ears. And there's this terrible thing he writes down that everything will be sorted out when he writes this book called *An English Summer*, a Gothic romance. Romance. And Sissy transcribes it. And Sissy, at the bottom of this piece of, piece of paper, goes, Raymond, one day you'll look back on this and laugh at all your hopeless dreams.
0: Yeah. Can I just say one, one more thing? The genius in these books, which could... You know, we've talked a lot about the style. We've said how funny it is. We've said how uh, flip it is. Everybody's playing a part. You know the thing that... that you know, the, to use the uh, Lebowski term, the rug holding the room together. <laughs> yeah is the fact that in all these books, death really matters. When somebody dies marlo really feels it and you the reader feels it that this 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 is not an insignificant thing so this true. is not another guy being plugged no. this is a thing that could and should have been prevented
1: that changes things and as somebody who'd been in the war the way he writes about dead bodies yeah, yeah. the way he writes mm. about how dead the bodies look, of the, the way in which of the, the, the description foot is yeah, yeah, facing yeah, the wrong way it, they're horrible the back of Marlowe's neck goes cold and He goes quiet, and it's hit him. You
2: mentioned Larkin. There's huge melancholy. I just wanted one last little bit. If I think of Chandra, I think of Marlowe on his his own in a room. So I drove back to Hollywood, bought a pint of good liquor, checked in at the plaza and sat on the side of the bed, staring at my feet and lapping the whiskey out of the bottle, just like any common bedroom drunk. When I'd had enough of it to make my brain fuzzy enough to stop thinking, I undressed and got into bed, and after a while... But not
0: soon enough, I went to sleep. That not soon enough? Yeah.
1: Mm. Yeah. That's really
0: good. I mean, it's... It- I, I just think the thing as well, John, that you said at the beginning, One of the thing, one of the blessings and the curses of doing this podcast is... If I could spend the next (laughs) fortnight reading everything else Roman Chandler wrote. And the letters, you know, he wrote great letters. And the (laughs) letters, these journals. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I've one last question for Andrew. Andrew and I uh, both, it's not a euphemism, we're great great admirers of film musicals. We we, we 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 like a film musical, right? And we're both great admirers of the work of Gene Kelly, right? So, Andrew, given everything that we've talked about with The High Window... It's commercial prospects, it's style. If The High Window were a Gene Kelly film, which Gene Kelly film would it be? What?
1: What? <laughs> An American in Paris. Ooh. Ooh. Because... Show your workings. It, it, it is him stepping outside of the genre. It's not pure genre. Yeah. It's a step outside. It's... Infused with melancholy, but it also has ambition to be something more than the genre that it's been labelled as. An American (laughs) in Paris. You know what? I was going to say one, but forget it.
0: Go on. You're right. no, no, right? No, no, no. I, I, it's, it's, I was going to say invitation to the dance Oh, but the, explaining why I would say invitation <laughs> to the dance is stretching the patience of anybody listening to this too far so uh, you and I can please talk about it in uh, <laughs> for a with, fact with, sheet yeah, with your,
2: to show Andrew if you can't show your workings Andy maybe other people could supply yeah, yeah, your workings yeah. for you That just about wraps up Backlisted for another episode. Thanks to Andrew Mail. Thanks to Andy Miller. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks to Matthew. And, of course, thanks once again to our sponsors, Unbound. You can get in touch with us on Twitter, at BacklistedPod, on Facebook, on the BacklistedPod page, and on the Unbound site at unbound.co.uk forward slash Backlisted. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with another show in a fortnight. Until then, farewell, my lovelies.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, everyone.
2: If you prefer to listen to Backlisted without adverts, you can sign up to our Patreon. It's www.patreon.com forward slash backlisted. As well as getting the show early, you get a whole two extra episodes of what we call Locklisted, which is Andy, me and Nikki talking about the books, music and films we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight.